Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Vayakhel Pikudei. It is a double portion. Um, and we are kind of in the middle of this double portion. So it doesn't make a lot of sense where it starts to me. Where are we? 37. Great. Verse 17 is where we should be. Okay. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but you know me. I try to stay honest. All right. So he made the lampstand, the menorah of Zahav, Tahor, of pure gold. He made the lampstand, its base and its shaft of hammered work. Its cup, calyxes and petals were of one piece with it. Six branches issued from its sides, three branches from one side of the lampstand and three branches from the other side of the lampstand. And then, of course, we have the one in the middle for a total of seven. There were three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals on one branch. And there were three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals on the next branch. So for all six branches issuing from the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, there were four cups shaped like almond blossom, each with calyx and petals. A calyx of one piece with it under a pair of branches and a calyx of one piece with it under the second pair of branches and a calyx of one piece with it under the last pair of branches. So for all six branches issuing from it, their calyxes and their stems were of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single hammered piece of pure gold. He made its seven lamps, its tongs and its fire pans of pure gold. He made it all and its furnishings out of a talent of pure gold. If that sounded confusing, um, it is. <laughs> if you're trying to imagine that, Judith Ubik and any other artist around here, good luck. It's a very difficult thing to visualize. And there's lots of discussion in the Midrash, um, even one that says it's so confusing that God didn't just give the instructions to Moshe. God gave um, a blueprint of the instructions, like an actual visual rendering to Moshe in his brain. Um, because otherwise it was nobody can figure out how to do this in real life. So, um, so if you're, if you're confused and that's a little bit why I'm flying through it, then I'll give us a little visual and then I will, we're going to talk a little bit more about all this gold stuff. He made the incense of altar of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide square and two cubits high. Its horns were of a piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its sides roundabout, and its horns, and he made a gold molding for it roundabout. He made two gold rings for it under its molding on its two walls on opposite sides as holders for the poles with which to carry it. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He prepared the sacred anointing oil and the pure aromatic incense expertly blended. He made the altar for burnt offering of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide square and three cubits high. So we have the incense altar and now we have the, the animal altar, right? The burnt offerings. He made horns for it on its four corners, the horns being of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with copper. He made all the utensils of the altar, the pails, the scrapers, the basins, the flesh hooks, and the fire pans. He made all the utensils of copper. He made for the altar a grating of meshwork and copper extending below under its ledge to its middle. He cast four rings at the four corners of the copper grating as holder for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with copper 
and he inserted the poles into the rings on the side walls of the altar to carry it by them. He made it hollow of boards. He made the laver, we remember this, don't we, of copper and its stand of copper from the mirrors of the women who performed tasks at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember, we studied this at one of the women's Passover celebrations, um, a couple of midrashim about these women and what they were up to. It's fun stuff, people. He made the enclosure on the south side, a hundred cubits of hangings of fine twisted linen for the enclosure with their 20 posts and their 20 sockets of copper, the hooks and bands of the posts being silver. On the north side, a hundred cubits with their 20 posts and their 20 sockets of copper and hooks and bands of the posts being silver. Same on the west, on the front, to the east, 50 cubits, 15 cubits of hangings on the one flank with their three posts and their three sockets and 15 cubits of hangings on the other flank on each side of the gate of the enclosure with their three posts and their three sockets. All the hangings around the enclosure were of fine twisted linen. We studied a little bit about this when we were looking at the priest's clothing and talking about Purim, right? So this is also the, what's going to be used in the, in the coverings of the Mishkan. The sockets for the posts were of copper. The hooks and bands of the posts were of silver. The overlay of their tops was silver. All of the posts of the enclosures were banded with silver. The screen of the gate of the enclosure done in embroidery. So now we're, um, so we're talking about the curtain that hangs down was of blue, purple, and crimson yarn. This should sound familiar. And fine twisted linen. It was 20 cubits long. Its height or width was five cubits like that of the hangings of the enclosure. The posts were four, their sockets were of copper, their hooks of silver, and the overlay of their top was of silver, as were their bands. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the enclosure roundabout were of copper. So one of the real questions is why? One of the, so there's a couple of questions. One is, did it really happen? That's number one. Number two is, why? Why, why all the detail about this and why do this? Why, why have this? So the, the answer to at least part of that second question, why, um, is because. That, that's what you do in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, because that's what you do. Everybody has a shrine. And if you're a semi-nomadic pastoralist people, you have a portable shrine. So you have to be able to move that wherever you're going, right? So everyone had a shrine because... Religious human beings from the ancient Near East, and this is across many different cultures, um, not just the ancient Near East, but in the ancient Near East, you had to have a space that allowed you to feel safe as a human being and that you were connected to the deity that created the cosmos. And how you did that was you represented the cosmos in physical space. So there, everyone can look at the Mishkan and you could see how every element of the Mishkan mimics creation. So they line it up very carefully. There's all these charts everywhere. You can find them anywhere on the internet, how the Mishkan lines up with the seven days of creation and all of the elements of those seven days of creation. Ancient humans needed a representation of the cosmos as the place in which they met the God of the cosmos. We understand things a little bit differently now, but we still have the same need, right? 
all y'all who are saying, when can we come back to KI? When can we come back to KI? Right? Why? Here we are. We're all together. So yes, some of it's about being in person, obviously, but some of it also, let's be honest, is about wanting to be in the sanctuary, right? It's about wanting to be back in our sacred space together. Now, in the ancient world, what's, it's not a gathering place for the community because only the priests and Levites could be inside that outer boundary. This was typical in the ancient world. You brought your offerings to the priest. Only the priest knew the rites and rituals that were happening inside the Mishkan, inside the sanctuary. So there would be an offering bench And the priests would put the offerings on the offering bench inside where, you know, the deity was was supposed to dwell before a niche in the wall would be a representation of the deity. And this fed the gods and it fed the priests. Israel is very much like its neighbors in this regard. That only the priests could could be in there doing the offerings. The the deity was understood to have a certain presence there. For us, it's between the Kruvim, between the cherubs on top of the ark. Remember, if you see, we think of the ark as big because we're used to seeing a Torah ark. But did you see the representation in that video? It's low. It's on the ground. Then you can understand how this would be the footstool of Yudhei-Vavhei. Yudhei is sitting on God's throne. The ark is God's throne. The Kruvim are where God's arms go. And at the foot of God is the footstool, the ark. And across the ancient Near East, we've talked about this before. I'll just mention it quickly again. The conquering king sits on the throne in the empty, hollow footstool of the conquering king is what? The contract, the covenant that the conquering king makes with the conquered king. That agreement, I, Amy Bernstein, have conquered your land. I am queen of everything. And so y'all owe me because I didn't kill you. And so now y'all are going to agree to give me this much from your crops and this much in taxes and this much of your people as my slaves to do my bidding. I'm getting carried away. Can you see there's a fantasy going on there? Okay, so then then the... um, That agreement goes in the footstool of the throne of the conquering queen. Okay? So what's in the footstool of Yudhei-Vavhei, king of kings? What's in that footstool? Exactly what happens in the Near East, in royal chambers everywhere. The agreement, the covenant between the king and the people goes in the footstool. So the agreement, the covenant is what? The tablets, right, of edut, of witness. Why are they called of witness? What are they witnessing? They're witnessing the obligation of Israel to its king. All right. That's a little bit about the the Israelite understanding of the sanctuary that's a little bit different. There's no image of the God. There's a throne on which the invisible God and king, Yudhei sits. Okay. But you're still going to have the priests doing what priests do in the ancient Near East. They're bringing the offerings of the people into where the God dwells so that the so God can accept the offerings of the people. And that is a way that the people come close to God. This is why offering sacrifice is called korban in Hebrew from karov to draw close. 
they understood this as the way of joining with God in a meal. But the people don't see those rituals. What's the difference between the secrecy of the cult in the ancient Near East and the cult of ancient Israel? What is the difference? The difference is Israel is given the instructions about every detail of what is supposed to be in the cultic space, what the rites and rituals of the cult are, and what the priests are doing in there, and what the Levites are doing in there. This is the difference with ancient Israel. The rites of the cult were not secret. All the Israelites, if they're studying Torah like they're supposed to, know what's going on in there. Now, they have to trust that that's what's happening because they can't see it. But presumably, if the priests weren't doing what they were supposed to do, what would happen? (laughs) The priests would ignite. And so you would know, okay, somebody failed at their job because remember Nadav and Avihu? Right? They get blown to smithereens. Okay. So... So we know all of that already. We know all of this from our study of the ancient Near East. We know all of this from the study of the Mishkan. Um, I'm always looking for a new take, as you know, because we've been doing this now for a really super long time together. I've been doing it for 24 years. So I'm always looking for something new. I found um, a a book called Spiritual Surgery uh, by Rabbi Eva Robbins. Um, And she has some interesting stuff that I want to, I want to share with you. And, um, those of you who are t- are artistic people, um, this is a, a book. And I, the other one I want to show you is that I just got was called The Artist's Torah. So Judith Ubik is getting excited. Mehmet's getting excited. You can tell our artistic types. Lee Sultan is like jumping up and down over there. Okay. So I'm going to try to draw on these for the next little bit for our study of the Mishkan uh, to try to give us a different take. And I might order art school and we might sit through one of those too. Okay, so so the 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 and here here's a chart of how the Mishkan lines up with creation. So there's lots of these available. You can find them all over uh, the internet. There's several variations, but I want to look at this um, at, at her her discussion and looking at some of the midrash about about this business of uh, gold, silver, and copper. So this is from her book that that I have here. Um, so she says the Mishkan represents the dynamic multivalenced layer of meaning. Obviously, each element of sacred vessel within it was understood by Chazal, our sages, and later by biblical commentators as transmitting important religious values and paradigmatic images of the cosmos, the divine creation. Whether understood or not, something was communicated that offered solace or connection to the divine. Okay, so then... Let's look at, here's a rabbinic understanding of what we were talking about, about the, the menorah. The golden candlestick has seven, has seven corresponding to the seven lights in the world, which are the seven stars. In the year, there are seven holy days. In a human being, there are seven gates, two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and one mouth. The soul is within the body, corresponding to the altar of incense, which is within the tabernacle. The table is in the north, corresponding to the Garden of Eden, in which all sorts of pleasures are kept. There were two altars, one of gold corresponding to the soul of the human being and one of brass 
corresponding to the body of the human being. Just as the body eats, even so does the brazen altar whose offerings were food. And just as the souls do not enjoy anything but scent, even so, nothing was offered on the golden altar but sweet incense, a thing which is done. This is an example of the creative and innovative understanding of the symbolic meaning of these vessels. And now she's going to take a look at something else, but I want to stop there and say, that's pretty cool. I don't think I've ever exactly heard that interpretation before. We've had the Mishkan line up with the body before, but I've never heard this interpretation, which I really like, um, that there's the altar of food, right? And then, you know, and then there's the altar of incense, which is just smoke, essentially, which is just, it's something that disappears into the air, something more ethereal. So there's the altar where we, the fire on which we need to get fed in this physical world. And then the, the incense altar, which kind of represents the spirit, the soul um, that, that is just about smell. Now for God, let's be fair, the altar, the animal altar is also only about smell. That's what we offer to God on the altar. The priests eat the food, right? When when the, the sacrifice is turned into smoke, that's what God gets, right? When it says, and this part is to be burned for Adonai, that's because God gets the reach nichoach, the amazing smell of fat and meat on the grill. We don't believe Yudhei eats, God forbid. God does, however, enjoy the smell of a good steak. So that's what we offer to God, um, is that reach nichoach, that smell, um, so God is not being literally fed, but we are eating the meal with God. God gets to enjoy the smell. We get to enjoy the actual food and share it with the priests. All right. So I liked this lining up with the body. I liked that. That was cool. That was totally cool. Right. And also the seven, the seven business, right. The open, the seven flames, you know, the seven cups for flame represent the, the two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and one mouth. That's, that's so cool. I love that. All right. Materials. What are the materials used in everything we just talked about in our text? Gold, silver, and copper. Zahav, kesef, and nechoshet. These were precious metals and symbolically considered signs of future disasters for the people. So this is the rabbis talking now, right? These are signs of future disasters. Gold was going to be about Babel, Babylonia. Silver was about Persia. And copper was about Greece. The holy spaces tend to tended to have gold, while the public spaces used predominantly copper. Now we're going to look at what, what Samson Raphael Hirsch says. Metals offer themselves more than anything else for allegorical expressions of our moral relations to our calling, the properties we should have towards our duty in general. He points out that copper would represent the ennoble nature. Why? Because it's a mix, Right. Silver, the one who was ready to be ennobled by purification. And gold, the most complete sense of purity and goodness. So Hirsch is saying the reason these different metals are used in all these different places and in different ways is because they represent the moral call of the Mishkan. And, you know, and then so what, what would that be? The, the, one, the part of us that's not connected to that as much, the one the part of us that's ready to by purification and other things, learning, we would might say, um, practice and gold, the most complete sense of purity and goodness. 
Gold, the most precious of them all, was used for the ark with the kruvim, the rings and staves, the menorah, and the table with their implements, the beams with rings and the pillars of the partition, the entrance screen and their hooks, belts, and caps. Gold was often seen as fit for royalty and associated with success, achievement, triumph, prosperity, luxury, and affluence. It transmitted great wealth and beauty. The Torah's beauty will be reflected through the ark. The ark, its cover, the table, its implements, the menorah, and the incense altar were specifically made of, and we read it, tahor, pure gold, as opposed to the regular gold for the other items. So what's the, what's, what's the illusion here? It's not an accident that the ark and the menorah and the incense altar are made of pure gold. It is, it is not an accident that this is wealth, beauty. Well, what do, what do we beautify? The container that holds the teaching, that holds the agreement, that holds the covenant, that holds how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to build a just uh, and holy society. Why, why pure gold? Pure gold was more refined. So all y'all scientists and artists, you know, I th- this is right up your alley. Pure gold was more refined and had no other elements in it. Unlike silver and copper, gold does not, I did not know this, gold does not reflect light, but holds the light within itself. Therefore, it held the most integrity as a metal and was not impacted from the outside like the silver and copper, which could be used for mirrors because of its capacity to reflect. Gold is symbolic of the warmth and the illumination of the sun. And now um, she talks about, you know, the uh, or Versailles, right? The, the sun king creates this incredible uh, Versailles gilded in gold from top to bottom. All right. So it's pure, but it, but it also doesn't, it doesn't reflect light. It absorbs light. Okay. That's pretty cool. So more like the sun, the source of light. Philo points out that gold is immune to rust. I did not know that, but I guess it makes sense. And when it is stretched and beaten down to its thinnest, it is incredibly strong and therefore long lasting. I did not know that either. It symbolized the highest nature and lined the ark inside and out as well as on the top. It, quote, weaves everything else into a harmonious whole. He states, gold is used allegorically for the human and represents the soul. Virtue is like gold, and it is something that adorns a person's movement and behavior. Virtuous life is golden for thoughts and deeds. So then it would make sense, right, that that was placed um, on the rituals that were most important for the daily um, performance of, of the priestly cult's rites, as well as the container that's going to hold the teachings about how to create a holy society and be a holy people. And especially because it is God's, of course, footstool. Yudhei footstool, it should be made of the most virtuous, most um, what represents the soul, right? And, and so it's made out of, it's covered in gold. I love that. Aviva Zorenberg sees it representing fire, motion, infinite transformation, therefore fitting for the Kruvim and the Ark, framing the sacred space the hollow out of which God will speak. For uh, ben o- R- Rav Ben-O-Jacob, gold is the noblest, purest, and most indestructible. 
and therefore ranked first in the medals. It is also associated with wisdom, understanding, and enlightenment, and therefore was fitting for the Ark, which housed the tablets and the laws, an essential source of Judaism's wisdom. Silver, then, is used for the sockets, which supported the planks of the walls, and for the hooks, belts, and caps of the pillars of the walls of the courtyard, so not the holy space, the space outside the holy space. So where the priests are in the holy space, it's gold, pure gold. And then when you come out to what contains that, what builds that space, it, it was the it was silver. It was the only material that came as a mandatory donation of the half shekel, right? So everyone, remember, everyone has to give a half shekel to the building of the, of the sanctuary. So the priests are the only ones dealing with the gold, the holy stuff at the center. Outside of that is the... The, the, the walls and the things that are going to delineate that space, that's made up of the donation from the people. I mean, it's all made from the donation of the people, but every single person gave half a shekel that was silver. Therefore, it symbolized the unity of the people and the tremendous support, both emotionally and physically, that held the Mishkan up. Silver shimmers like the celestial orbs and therefore could be associated with cycles of the moon, Hirsch says. Gold, this is the sun. Silver, this is the moon. Copper, this is the west. Judaism is aligned with the feminine because it ebbs and flows. The moon is like the female menstrual cycles and therefore a symbol of Shekhinah, the indwelling presence of the divine in physicality. And Ramban says, for I will meet you there and cause my Shekhinah to dwell upon them and will speak with you. Um, okay, so there's one question about if the high priest is the only one who could enter the Holy of Holies and see the Holy Ark, how could the Israelites carry it into battle? Okay, those of you who've been learning with me for a while, how, how could that happen? How could they carry the Ark if only the priests are allowed to see it? Do we remember? Remember, we talked one year about the Gershonites, the Merorites, the Kenites. Remember that? Nope. <laughs> She's shaking her head. <laughs> Elena's like, nope, do not remember that. All right. So there were clans of Levites who were charged with portage. They were, they were charged with doing the carrying. The priests would cover the ark, and then different clans were given the assignment to uh to wrap stuff up and or to uh, and then to do portage to carry it remember they lifted it up onto their shoulders and we talked about the roll being the the verb to lift up right okay i don't know why i bother okay so um that's how it was covered and then they could carry it um and it's not that people couldn't see the ark Barry, it's that they couldn't enter the Kodesh Kedoshim. They couldn't enter the Holy of Holies where the Ark was. Um, it's, it's not that they couldn't see it. They couldn't touch it. Only the, only the people who were given permission to do porterage could touch it. So if you'll recall, some guy touched it and pff, remember? All right. So you, you, can't, you can't touch it, but you can see it. But you can't go into the Holy of Holies to see it. It has to come out. All right. So... So this idea that gold, I didn't really ever think about all these different layers or levels. I did, of course, get that gold is expensive. Gold is associated with like adorning what we most love, that it is beautiful, that it is 
expensive and precious. And therefore, you know, you put it on, on things that you want to adorn and glorify. Um, and so that makes total sense to me. I did not realize that it does not reflect light. It absorbs light. That's pretty cool. I also did not know that when you beat it down and cover something in it, it's incredibly strong. I always think of gold as remember, you don't want 10, you don't want 14 carat on your finger or 18 right. carat because I'll destroy it in a week, right? You want 10 carat, like less pure gold because it's stronger. So I, I did not think the purer gold beaten down would be strong, but Judith is trying to talk. And she probably knows more than me. So go ahead. Well, gold is strong in its raw state. But after it's refined, in other words, all the other minerals taken out of it, and every mineral in the earth has other minerals running through it. Once it's refined, it's very heavy. It's very strong until you touch it. And then a 24-karat ring will get beaten to death on your hand. That's why jewelers use 22 karat. They reinforce pure gold with minerals to make it stronger. Also, uh, if you if you use very thin sheets of gold uh, for decorating, it's going to get beaten up. Even resting on a shoulder of a porter, it will get matched. It's so pure that it's it's wonderful to look at, but it's really not very good useful material hmm. so and it does reflect light as you as you say and but you'll never find even jewelry marked pure gold like you see in china thailand um other parts of the world it's really 22 karat gold and even most of the 22 karat gold if pressed they will admit it's 18 karat 10 karat gold is or even 14 karat gold is not considered even really gold by Europeans and Americans because it's it's too diluted. 24 carat means it's 24 out of 24 parts gold. 14 carats means that it's only 58% gold. 18 carats means it's 75% gold. 22 carats means pure gold, but a few minerals are put in it as well. Wasn't the, uh, wasn't the pure here... Uh, ritually pure to whore and not necessarily- I would imagine that's the case. Yeah. No, no. Because well, how, how did they refine it? I, I wonder how they had the no. tools to refine it. No, because things things are not in and of themselves tahor or tameh. Things are not ritually pure or impure in and of themselves. Unless they, it's the usage. They get impurified and then you purify them. It doesn't, gold, gold is not pure by nature any more than dirt right? right. or copper or silver, right? Purity is about, is an interaction with energy, or as we would say, as we like to say, you know, around here, the dross of sin, that's impurity, not, it's, this, this is referring to the metal. What kind of gold? It has to be pure gold. Now, y'all can fight about that. I don't know nothing about that. But, um, but, but I believe probably it goes to what you were saying about how much of another mineral runs through it. It does. That, that also, how do you make a lampstand out of pure gold? Like what you're saying is it would fall over. And gold melts very easily. So to have heat near gold would be a problem too. So now we have a menorah that when you light, it melts. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to have you write Rabbi Eva Robbins. And um, I want you to I know Eva. record Eva's- your conversation with her about 
how this might be. Like, how could this be? Anyway. Um, Eva Robbins makes beautiful, um, uh, what do you put on the doorpost? Um, mezuzah. Uh, mezuzah. And she's married to Steve Robbins, Rabbi Steve Robbins. And she's also doing advertisements on television currently about health care in the home. Apparently, Steve has some kind of a problem. Well, and she has on this beautiful necklace that she probably made. She probably did. And she's a wonderful lady. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Um, Okay. So uh, who had their hand up? Audrey? Did someone say, Audrey, you wanted to talk? I was scratching my head. You were scratching your head. Don't do that during this hour. Okay. Who else? Somebody else wanted to say something? No? All right. Mehmet? Uh, just a quick note on uh, regions that are um, closer to Iraq and Syria, even today in Turkey. If you bring um, gifts to um, a, um, to a wedding ceremony, you, you never bring 14 or 18 karat gold because it's not considered valuable or sacred. You, you've got to bring 22 carats. It needs to be as yellow as possible. And I guess that's a tradition that goes back thousands of years to Mesopotamia. So the, the, the concept of purity, you know, value and, and sacredness must be a tradition over there. Absolutely. So, right. I love it when Mehmet can connect us to the region, <laughs> right? I love that. Maxim, you are Maxim, indeed. Um, so the, the text that you were showing us um, <clears throat> said that um, as a matter of energy, Judaism ebbs and it, and it flows. And so that makes it feminine. Um, and whenever I think of like feminine energy, I also think of its balancing opposite, which is masculine energy. So there's this, you know, balancing interplay. And um, I'm, I'm wondering how that works out in Judaism. What is that? balancing act so i think here it was a reference to gold being one kind of energy and it was referencing in particular silver being the energy of the moon so the sun would be gold and masculine and the the silver would represent the moon and the moon is associated with the feminine and when we're given the commandment to build the mishkan it says um y'all shall make me a mikdash a sanctuary, the shachanti betocham, that I may dwell within them. So that word to dwell, the shachanti, and I will dwell, is tied for the rabbis to the word shechina, the feminine indwelling presence of God. Mm-hmm. So I think what they're talking about, what, what she's referencing is kind of exactly what you said, the balance of, of gold and male energy, masculine energy, and the silver, which reflects the moon, lunar, shechina, the feminine, indwelling nature of the divine. And of course, both are critical, right? Bo- both have to be there, both, and they have to be in balance, or we have problems. <laughs> what do you mean the, uh, the in- indwelling nature? So... For ancient Israel, they understood that God was out there and bigger than everything, right? And yet there was this sense that God wants to dwell with, and they say, not just within the people, but within the people to dwell in us, right? So it is the indwelling, it's the God that lives with us. It's the God that wants us to move in and be lovers with us. 
the beloved, capital B, right? So the intimacy of kind of the the indwelling God, the help me people, give me another word. I'm not, I keep just coming back to indwelling, but there's another word that we use for Shekhinah, for the, uh, I don't know. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not communicating it. Am I? Well, I think that makes sense because um, I actually read these ancient yogic texts uh, in one of my classes last semester. And um one of the ideas was that like your your internal soul um, is like the same as the universe, and there's this sort of oneness in that. Um, but that seems very very similar to what you're saying yeah. about this inner dwelling versus this external. Yes. So so soul is close, but but the shechina is is more than just each of our souls. It's you might call it the oversoul, of which each of us has a spark. If that makes sense. Um, it, it's it's the energy of the divine that is present right here. Then there's the energy of the divine that's like the cosmos, you know, and the bigger um, out there kind of God. And for the rabbis, Shekhinah was this very intimate, you know, Shekhinah's the lover of yod They unite. According to the Kabbalists, they unite on Shabbat, and when they unite, like we pray for them to unite, we want to mimic that down here to make that happen above. And so Yudhe Vavhe unites with Shechina and everything's grooving. Right? So it has to be that they come together. So they're not separate, They but but they do have this image of the Shechina being the feminine, Yudhe Vavhe being the masculine, and they, they, they unite in an intimate, loving connection that sustains the universe. So is that sort of like our, if we are created in God's image, then there's that part of us that we all carry about within us that is reflective of God. And so that's, that's that piece of us and that we all carry that with us because we are God's creatures. Yes. And so every time you see the rabbis lining up the Mishkan with the body, part of it is that move. We don't have the Mishkan anymore. We don't have the temple anymore. So the rabbis know we have to shift. And so every time they make the Mishkan tie to the body, for me, it's that move to the Shachanti Betocham. Let them build me a Mikdash so that I may dwell in them. And so each of us is supposed to understand ourselves as a Mikdash Me'at, as a small Mishkan, right? Yes. And so that then within us, is the dwelling within us, just like in the Mishkan, dwelling within our holy of holies, the heart, the spade, the soul, whatever, um, is, yes, the divine presence. And that we are Amen. we are created of Amen. and in the image of the divine. Yes, Mehmet. Um, I think back then in those times, that must have been a step forward in the history of gods and deities. Because... Um, as you said, God is out there. That that used to be the concept for a very long time until I guess uh, monotheism came, and especially um, Judaism. Uh, and then we started saying God is in us. God dwells in us. So that must be the a, a part of a protest movement to the concept of um, uh, gods. Hundred percent. Sure I'm explaining it well. Hundred percent. It is revolutionary. But it's really the rabbis yeah. that make that move, right? 
the the rat. So, so it, it's not, it, it 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 hasn't happened uh, with the Israelites. It's it's hap- it, it happened in the rabbinic times. Yes, because I think the, the Israelites are now post exile. There is a revolution in that God is invisible. We know what's happening inside that space. There's not many gods. There's the one God that creates the universe and creates us and right and is represented in the Mishkan. That is a, that is a change. And I'm not going to say it's better or worse, right? It just it's a change. The big change comes when that's obliterated as a possibility. When the temple is destroyed, it's the rabbis who make the move, and they were already pushing against right the temple and the priesthood before the temple's destroyed, right? There's already this movement away from the physicality and the focus on the sacred space and the cult. There's this move away from that to what about being ethical? What about being moral? What if the priest is corrupt? God is still going to accept that sacrifice, right? That starts to not make a lot of sense to a lot of people who really remember the holiness code. We talked about this with the holiness code, that there's this push now towards moral, ethical parts of the commanded tradition and not just the cult. But once the temple's destroyed, the cult is gone. And now it is only and all about God that dwells within us, that is connected to the God of the cosmos. We become that connection point. Our behavior in the world becomes the ritual that used to happen in the temple. Right. So then it dictates how we treat each other then as well, because we are all a piece of that, that holiness or whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That becomes a big move that, that it is now located in us. Right. And in our behavior in the world, the divine and, and where, so that's, that's how it moves out of space. What remains Heschel's great quote, what remains the cathedral in time, Shabbat. Shabbat remains from the time of the Israelites to now, right? This relationship to space dramatically changed. What did not? Our worshiping in the cathedral of time. Time set aside, the way the Mishkan was sacred space set aside for connection to the divine, what remains forever, otile olam, it is a sign between us forever, says the divine, um, is the worship in the sanctuary that is still extant in time set aside for the connection to the divine. And that is how, by the way, these par- this parsha ends, these parshiot end, is with the they're talking about Malacha, they're talking about all the work and the craftsmanship and all the things that go into creating the Mishkan. Immediately following that, it says six days they shall do this business, but on the seventh, they shall cease from their Malacha, from their work. So the rabbis say the word Malacha is used by the rabbis right after talking about all the Malacha done for the Mishkan. There must be a connection Therefore, it can't be an accident, God forbid. So melacha that we're not allowed to do on Shabbat must mean anything that was done as melacha that was part of building the Mishkan. So any melacha that was done to build the Mishkan is how the rabbis get what's forbidden to do on Shabbat. So if you're wondering why tearing the toilet paper is considered melacha, that's why. 
right? Anything that was done to create the Mishkan, anything was considered by the rabbis. That's what it means. Don't do your malacha on Shabbat. Because it's right there. They're right next to each other. That has to be a connection. So Mehmet says, we build our invisible cathedrals wherever 10 Jews gather. Exactly right. We build the cathedral. When 10 of us get together, we build a minyan. And the minyan holds in a different way this idea of community and the divine presence being there and activated in a different way. Exactly. We build, we build sanctity now, right? When we gather. Exactly. So, um, so I want to close with this idea that, you know, we're all about busyness and we're all about doing. And, and Shabbat is the balance to that. Back to Maxim's beautiful point is that, right, there needs to be a balance. So all of this creating and crafting and building and making and gathering and con- constructing is all holy work. It's all beautiful. And it's balanced by Shabbat. Shabbat is not there to negate the work. And I really want to stress this. They're put together here. That all of the work, the the crafting, the manipulating that we do during the week can be holy work. It can build really beautiful things in the world. Beautiful things that help us express not only our creativity, but our relationship to the divine. They needed these utensils to do the cultic rites that connected them to the divine. So there is no sense in which Shabbat is there to say work is bad. Work is good when it's good, right? Sometimes it's just because we need to feed our family and put food on the table. That's good. We're supposed to do that. And the Mishkan is all about that. And then one day out of seven, We stop doing that and we do something else. We don't stop doing, by the way. It doesn't say just stop and sleep for 24 hours, although some of us sometimes do sleep for about 24 hours. But that's not the goal. The goal is not just to stop. Vaginafash, that other verb, to re-selfify, to re-solify. That's the work of Shabbat. It's not that there's nothing to do on Shabbat, but we have to figure out what is it we need to do, vaginafash, in order to re-nefesh ourselves, in order to re-solify ourselves? And sometimes that's a lot of work, trying to figure that out, right? Right, Barry, as opposed to golden calves that you throw in the gold and it comes out all by itself. We have to do the work of building the Mishkan. And everyone contributed. And that's, that's the Jewish way. It takes work. It takes a lot of work and it takes work to figure out how to do Shabbat in a way that, that leaves us after those 24 hours feeling different, feeling like we've, we've come through a different kind of time, a different kind of experience, a different kind of engaging with each other uh, and the material world. It's not that we leave the material world, but it might mean hot water that we're usually using to wash the dishes we use to take a bath with really good smelly stuff in it. And schmecky oil and Epsom salts. And you see how I spend my time. So that, that, right, that's the difference. You don't stop engaging with the physical world, but you engage differently so that when we're done with that interaction with the world, we feel like we have been in a cathedral in time, have worshipped, have experienced the presence of the divine, experienced it with each other and then come out of that time ready to go into the week differently, ready to go into the week 
to contribute at, of our gifts and talents. And, and any artist will tell you, you can't do that when you're exhausted. You can't really create when you're drained and the well is dry. We need Shabbat in order for us to come back to the creation that only each of us can do in this world. And of course, the, the work every week is figuring out what is that this week. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.